everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Contagious Courage podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Matheson, and today I am so excited to be here with the very first person I ever told about my crazy little dream to start a podcast, Hussein Albayati. Thank you hey. so much for joining me today, Hussein. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your, on your show here. This is so exciting. Thank you. I'm super excited about it. Um, so we actually met back at a global PDX event. Was it in October or November? Do you remember? I want to say it was probably October. Okay. Uh, like end of October, maybe that's why I think those two months mesh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I got to hear Hussein's story there. Um, he was a guest speaker and I instantly knew that he was somebody I wanted to connect with and ultimately interview on this podcast. Uh, which was Very just a, cool. an idea at the time. Yeah. So even though uh, we were basically strangers, uh, you were the first person I told. <laughs> and sometimes I think it's easier to tell strangers things. Yeah. I don't know if you can relate to that. <laughs> I, I can. I can totally. I mean, yeah. there's no harm in telling someone a dream that you have. They could either be supportive or shoot you down, but most likely supportive because most people are I guess the people that I've run into sometimes are kind of nice. They're very supportive, but yeah, kinda, I guess um, it also depends on who you run into. So. Exactly. Well, I was lucky to run into you um, because your response was great. Um, you were like, what are you waiting for? And uh, I guess sometimes you just got to take that leap of faith. Um, yes, of course. Figure it all out. Um, yeah. But you have a really incredible story. Um, you and your family were refugees when you were younger. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about leaving your country and what that was like mm -hmm. and then your experience in the refugee camp. Okay. Um, I'll dive right in. So, you know, from my personal perspective, from my age today, sort of looking back, it's hard not to uh, dilute sort of the experience of what it was like then with everything that I know now, of course. Um, but I'll try my best to keep it raw. And I guess I would say I was really young. So like when I left, you know, I was about maybe five, five years, four and a half, five years old. It was, um, it was obviously very, it was in the winter. It was pretty bad in the sense that nobody knew what the hell was going on. There was bombs going off, war happening, and it was, it's so fast. Um, you know, people hear like you would hear it on the news and you can kind of go to sleep. And this is what I mean by today's projection inter interjects. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, back then or back, back home when I was young, I don't know. I just woke up one day. We were on this huge truck. Um, it was a come to find out later. It was just a huge uh, like sort of asphalt company truck. It's where my dad used to work. So those those trucks were around and, and nearby. And so they filled these trucks up with people and, and basically took them out into the desert as far as they could to the borders of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And there was a place called um, Memlaha, which is like basically a giant like salt mine. And um, that's where we were for a few days until um, the United Nations allowed us to go into the uh, Saudi Arabian border, like through into their country, a few miles in, I would assume. And then we stayed 
in like a smaller camp there and then the camp got really big so they moved us inland a little bit more still out in the desert um but it was primarily you know refugee tents and things like that for Mm -hmm. about a year or a year and a half and then things got a little a little bit more intense there but that's from uh, that's a collection of memories that's not purely my memory uh, right. from from you know my family and things like that and mm-hmm. um but yeah I mean I guess you know it was so emotional that that's really when my memory kicked in so it was, you know it's an interesting time for, for yeah. things like that to go down because you're just like oh I'm leaving home and you know you're not, you're not thinking about anything else than toys and stuff like that you're so little you know right. what I mean? um, and so you guys were refugees in Saudi Arabia um, and you were leaving Iraq, is that correct? Right. So we left okay. Iraq um, about 1991, so like winter of 91, so like January, February, I believe. We get into Saudi Arabia, and um, we were there for um, until uh, until June of 94. Okay. So about three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, that's my young childhood, I guess, experiences were just growing up in this camp. Yeah. So just, you know, really playing, hanging out with my brother a lot, you know, hanging out, I have a, had a little sister too. And I mean, I remember the, one of the most vivid things I remember was just hanging out with my dad too. And he was an artist and that's a whole other story. Um, right. I remember you sharing um, mm-hmm. about your dad and if you could just mm-hmm. share a little bit about how his attitude or outlook uh, mm-hmm. impacted your life while living in the camp. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, you know, one, I always say I'm I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because one, I had a mother and a father growing up. On top of that, I had older siblings, you know, and and brothers and a sister at that. So I had a very dynamic, fully, you know, the range of emotion you can think of (laughs) Um, and and under under one tent. And there was there was seven uh, siblings and you know boys and girls and uh, a mother and father and so it was a pretty big family all stuffed up but somehow some way we managed to get along and I think a lot of it had to do with my my parents sort of way of I don't know helping us and guiding us and uh, protecting us while also um, bringing laughter my dad was really into like comedy and theater and he actually worked on a lot of things he wrote things but a big part of his life was painting. Um, so he would come home after his, you know, day job um, doing this management thing at an asphalt company. And he would paint, you know, into the night, um, but not obviously not skip out on his dinner and family time and all that. He would basically paint after we'd go to bed or sometimes we'd wake up early and you can find him painting somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that was his thing. I was his outlet. It was his uh, go-to sort of mechanism. And what I learned a lot of was just like, how he would pour his emotions, you know, into his work. So, you know, when we were in this refugee camp, you know, he was sort of had this itch to continue painting, you know, he needed to express himself. And so we'd walk around these refugee camp and he would pick up old, you know, tethered tents and turn them into canvas. I mean, they were made from canvas. So he would just turn them into squares. And so time kind of flew by. and, And next thing you know, we had these soldiers coming to our tent and, discovered his art just almost by mistake because they were there to really search if we had weapons or not Mm -hmm. and they were so sort of 
surprised and loved his artwork they started they came back that night and brought like canvases and art supplies <laughs> from a nearby town and that we couldn't access you know uh-huh. um, because we were refugees so anyways um cool. my father starts meeting sort of these people and um that i believe a big portion of his ability to say positive bring laughter community and connect people and then sort of art as the sort of the centerpiece of all those things. Mm-hmm. And always having a conversation piece is important to him. <laughs> it was always important to him uh, because, you know, he felt that conversation communicating with others is, uh, you know, half of living life. So might as well enjoy it. And so, um, you know, those are, the thi- so those are some things that he subconsciously taught me. I guess they mm-hmm. were just in front of me. So you can't get away from it. Right. <laughs> Um, but later on you grow to really appreciate and dissect the anatomy of those things and realize, wow, like, uh, that helps this part of my life now. And that helps this other part. And so it's really cool. That is cool. Um, do you, would you say that at least within the camp refugee camp that you guys were in, um, was life pretty similar for a lot of the families there? Or do you feel like your experience was different than a lot of them because of the family that you had? You know, my personal experience um, was very different. Again, I was, you know, I was growing up, I was very young, but I had older siblings that like laugh with me, joke with me, you know, put me on their shoulders and went around They took me to school. So I was mm-hmm. very well taken care of. I'm not like, I will never deny that. And, and, mm-hmm. I'm so fortunate for having that. Now, to be honest with you, in other communities, other parts of the refugee camp, people had it way worse, right? There was, you know, they even separated the men from families. So, like, if you're a single man and didn't have a family or wife or kids, Mm -hmm. you were basically, you're with men most of your life or most of the time that you're there. Mm -hmm. But if you had relatives, um that were obviously a family you can come visit and everything but it was just this complete utter disconnect and it it couldn't have been easy you know and and I remember my uncle uh, my mom's brother ended up staying there until 2004 so he never got out oh wow yeah until the recent war and then um, when he eventually moved back he was able to finally marry and sort of finally start a life but for almost almost 15, 15 years, his life was on pause. Um, wow. And so, you know, it, that I can't imagine what kind of impact trauma, mental, you know, issues you would have just from being in that situation. Right. And, but, you know, when you see him, he's somehow got a smile on his face, like just glad it's over. You know, it's it's one of those experiences, right? Like when you you can't almost feel freedom until it's taken away from you. Sadly, you know, some people mm-hmm. like you know, and then when you when you finally have it again, you're like thankful that you even get to walk outside of a you know mile radius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, super powerful. Um, so yeah, I'm sure at that time, you know, like different families went through very difficult extremes. I mean, mm-hmm. not to mention the women that were pregnant, the, yeah. the, you know, the fathers that were gone, the sons that were lost. Like, I mean, the, the story is endless, but um, again, that's why I, I truly feel like, you know, there's a lot of people that play the lottery. I'm like, I already won. <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. win again. <laughs> you know, um, I, like, I truly feel that my life is extremely, um, it, it's very like a, 
like a thin slice of the pie, like the thinnest slice you can cut. Like that's how lucky I got. <laughs> yeah. You know, to come out here. So cool. And did you guys come? We we came straight to uh, Portland, Oregon. Actually, we had a relative that left about two years before us. Okay. Um, just through the immigration process, um, and they helped basically recruit, bring us here. Okay. Um, but there was a, a a church in Florida that sponsored to pay for all of our tickets. Wow. Um, in order to basically pay back um, when we finally moved and settled here. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I remember my dad made like $10 payments for almost 10 years, you know, wow. and they were cool with that until yeah. he paid it off. And uh, I remember him sitting next to me when he wrote the final check and it was like 200 bucks. And uh, it just, I mean, he wrote the nicest thank you letter, you know, mm-hmm. and it, again, it just shows like there's people out there that may not be of your faith. That may not be of your color. That may not be of your thinking process, but they're, they'll help you somehow, maybe directly or indirectly, um, but they do. And yeah. that's how we were able to come here. So, yeah, I love that there are people out in the world like that. Yeah. Um, so coming straight from Saudi Arabia to Portland, Oregon, uh, how were you when you guys made that move? Uh, I would say about, about eight and a half. Or so, okay. yeah, eight, eight, eight years old or so. so okay. We... Um, are you able to share a little bit about that immigration process? Uh, I, I feel like it's kind of a, mm-hmm. a mystery mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit into it. Basically, what happens on the refugee end in the camps um, is basically that there is legions of groups or like small organizations that are connected to you know, the United States, Australia, you know, all these different countries. And for example, Australia says, you know, our limit for a year is to take out, you know, 100,000 refugees or like help out 50,000 refugees, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then that organization hops around these different refugee camps and tries to basically pull as many families as they can. And, you know, it's weird. It's like a lottery system. There's this, there's all kinds of just political intertwinedness of madness in that, right? In that whole process from that end. And then what the people are doing are standing in line, waiting to go into these huge tents uh, to basically, you know, you, you write down all every bit of information you can possibly think of. So the process is really long. And it's, you know, it's hot, it's, mis- it's pretty much miserable because the conditions are where people don't live, right? These camps are not in the middle of cities. They're in the right. outskirts of wherever you can put them, but they, they cannot interfere with our normal day society. So like, it's not the best climate or the best environment in any which case. Some may be lucky to be in a tempered one, but most, mm-hmm. most refugee camps are pretty awful. Um, and so I guess from that perspective, you know, I remember we stayed a whole, like almost 24 hours in this smaller sort of camp where they had portables set up and things like that for immigration offices, basically, and you'd get interviewed. Mm -hmm. So your family would just go through, you know, 15 interviews that are basically the same, but they're with different countries, if you will. Oh, and so okay. they say, oh, you know, we'll interview for 
you know, Sweden and this and that. And then you just sit there and you go through this family interview process. And then if you get chosen once a week, there was a billboard in the middle of the city that just had your family's name on it. That means you're called up to now get more information to figure out when you would leave and X, Y, Z. Okay. So you're interviewing with different countries Mm -hmm. who are willing to accept refugees Mm -hmm. and then they basically decide if they're willing to take your family or not. Exactly. Yeah. And you, and you basically had a better chance if you had like a bigger family with more kids and you, you know, like the men were like the last to get interviewed because you know, there's okay. just so many, and the women obviously were sort of bumped up first for obvious reasons, right? especially kids. And so there's like, uh-huh. it's a, I don't think it's like a, you know, stake in the ground, like system structure, but they have some sort of formula that they, I'm sure, utilize. Mm-hmm. And I, and again, I don't know this exact specific details of how they go about doing it, but that's how it works. And then once yeah. you get here, they line you up with Catholic charities or ERCO or a few other nonprofit organizations that help take care of refugees and immigrants to help you kind of, you know, learn the ways, learn the culture, learn English, you know, um, sign you up for things. So for about six months or eight months or so, they kind of give you a little stipend, just a a couple of hundred bucks to kind of get you moving. Um, But then you're kind of on your own and you got to got to learn quick. And again, I'm lucky because, you know, I had brothers. Um, <clears throat> that were able to sort of work right away, an older sister, and, and so they kind of got in the workforce mm-hmm. right away, and then that was that was mm-hmm. able to help us kind of get on our feet much quicker, as yeah. opposed to if it was just like my mom and dad and us kids, it would have been much more difficult. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a big move, mm-hmm. though, for for a eight and a half year old. Yeah. Uh, how was it adjusting to a new culture? as a eight and a half nine-year-old kid oh man I so I remember coming here and just being like this is a whole new like I thought I left earth at that point it was just so <laughs> different everything was different I mean imagine going from just an just a desert you know with with tents uh-huh. and and mud and, and just that madness. And then you're like in this like super futuristic, like it's stuff you saw in movies, you know, it's at some point we got generators and little TVs and people were able, I mean like this, these little refugee camps became little towns, you know? Yeah. And so, you, you know, I would watch, I remember watching Terminator and going like, this is the coolest place in the world. Like I can't wait to go there <laughs> and I can't wait. Cause I'm going to buy a Lamborghini because that's what I thought everyone had. <laughs> Um, America really accentuates itself through media and so how the world perceives mm-hmm. America is obviously through pop culture you know right. um, and so that's what you think is here anyways you come here and it's obviously very different um, though it's beautiful right. magnificent I got to grow up in Beaverton I mean it's like suburbia in the 90s mm-hmm. um so like a golden era of like pop culture hip-hop <laughs> you know a couple different things and so I was young I started I started third grade here okay. and then I, they put me in ESL which is like English's second language and right. um by fifth grade there was an opportunity to like write a book and submit it for this competition thing somebody came and spoke to our library class or whatever it was 
I was like, oh my God, I could totally draw this and make a story up. And, uh, and I did. And I got my teacher to kind of help me with writing it. And I drew it out and uh-huh. pumped it out probably within a month and submitted this thing. And it was crazy. Like, it's, I was just talking to my wife the other day. I was like, I don't even know if I have those kinds of guts now. Like, how did I have those guts? You know, I barely spoke English, <laughs> barely wrote this thing, you know, and it was, it was crazy. But uh-huh. um, my experience was really like, oh, there's an opportunity. I'm going to take advantage of it. It just seemed easy. You know, even though yeah. I was facing so many different difficulties. But again, when you're young, you don't think about the difficulties, really. I just kind of right. pushed through that and just saw opportunity. And yeah. and again, maybe it was my father that pushed. My, you know, I came home, was like, hey, I need some new, I literally was like, I need new markers and a new thing with some specialty paper because I'm going to make a book. It's like, great, we'll take you to the <laughs> art store tomorrow. And I, like, had he not done that, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. You know what I'm saying? So, right. Um, I, again, I was very fortunate to have such a uh, supportive, you know, they were very challenged also because the culture here was so different, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, right. you know, it's very things that we just don't do back home or things that are very right. taboo. Um, it, it was like, I mean, my, I remember my dad, like, dry, we were driving and uh, it was hot, it was summertime. And I think a girl was like in her bikini top and it was just like, my dad was just like turned <laughs> red, you know? And it, again, like you don't see that stuff coming from a culture where women are just covered from head to toe because that's our, our society right. and our culture, that's our norm. Right. And, yeah. um, and I'm not trying to get religious here or anything or political or anything like that. I'm just, it's kind of stating like the differences that, mm-hmm. that you are not accustomed to. And then all of a sudden that's the norm. And so, right there's a hard line, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard because you're trying to maintain your culture, your identity, what you connect to, but you're mm-hmm. also trying to be open and not misguided, but like open to be like cool and comfortable and like, yo, you do you as long as I can do, do me. Um, yeah. Is, you know, opens up a whole kinds of, you know, and then you get to face some prejudice here and there. And then you get to face, mm-hmm. you not really, you don't feel like you're from around here because you're, you could spend a year driving around Beaverton or Portland, you still don't know it. And so, I mean, we come from a town, you know, small town, like maybe 100,000 people, 200,000 people, like everybody pretty much knew everybody. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like in the sense of uh, like Iraq, where, where there are tribes known each other for a thousand mm-hmm. years, like it's crazy. Right. So yeah. from that perspective, again, I didn't have too much of that. So I didn't have to carry that. My, my parents did, my older right. brothers did, but so I started so it was probably, fresh. Yeah. Like for me, yeah. it was sort of absorbing the American culture and like that way of life and more Westernized um, right. way. Like I would say I open-minded, but also aware of my mm-hmm. culture, if you will. Cause you couldn't, I couldn't right. escape it. <laughs> Yeah. So probably just a different or a more difficult adjustment for your parents to make and your older siblings, um, as opposed to you and, and your younger sister. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. How do they, how do they feel about it now? Um, you know, it's funny, like, uh, unfortunately, like my father passed, you know, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but, um, my mom, you know, still to a degree, honestly, still has some hard times with it, you know? She, mm-hmm. she's never completely like um, I guess 
would I would say like she's never completely like opened up to completely living here so in her mind she still Mm -hmm. wants to go back home and live right yeah but there's obstacles yeah like she's got health problems and all these but like you know my older siblings they've definitely opened up and they live here most of them do and they're they got kids now or kids are in high school Mm -hmm. I mean so more more or less everybody has gotten to a point where they've adjusted to sort of I don't want to say an American lifestyle but like more of just acceptance lifestyle she's like right. hey this is where I live now it's too hard to go back home so I'm gonna make the best yeah. of this and be the immigrant you know what I mean and, and just try and so right. that was a huge adjustment yeah. on all parts I think even for me you know um, mm-hmm. have any of you guys gone back to visit Saudi Arabia or any um, like family roots or anything so not Saudi Arabia um because that once that refugee camp closed, it was pretty much a wrap. Um, but th- okay. but I you know my mom dad have gone back to Saudi Arabia um, because they visited Mecca, so they went back and did okay. a pilgrimage and things like that. But none mm. none of the siblings, I think, we're all too traumatized now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but most of us, pretty much all of us, have gone back to visit Iraq, um, whether it be okay. for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. So things are much, cool. obviously, much better now. To at least you can right. visit and go, and you're not too worried about things. So, yeah. yeah, that's great that you guys have been able to to go back though and and visit. Yeah, and, and just re- especially for you and your sister, since you guys were so young yeah. when you left Iraq. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's just such a such an incredible story, I think. Um, and now you run your own company. Yeah. Um, and I love it because it has such a, a meaningful and inspiring purpose. Um, so the printery, mm-hmm. uh, can you share a bit about the company or how you got started, where that idea came from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I was, when I got into college or when I was heading into college, um, I knew I was like, before that, all through high school, I was like, I'm going to be an architect. That's just what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my art skills to make money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, just because, and also like th- this idea of security, right? So like my immigrant parents or refugee parents always push education. I'm sure you, I'm sure right. you know this. Um, yeah. Specifically in the engineering, architecture, doctoral, you know, those worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, because where we come from, those things, those um, jobs are prestigious, their their right. security, their prestige, their you know accolades around them. They're they're high. They're held at a very high sort of realm. Right. And so and and that's similar here too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but we, but here there's more freedom. <laughs> right. <to> do, <laughs> yes. well, so like you can be an art, but you don't just have to be an architect. Like you don't, you can be like you can own the firm, right? Like you can mm-hmm. go so much further than w- what mm-hmm. you what what I thought was like the limit you know what I mean right and so you know I grow up thinking that that's what I'm going to do and I get into college um going into architecture and um but I start screen printing on the side and but I started doing that because I was hand painting t-shirts literally out of like my room and garage (laughs) just like I started hand painting like Michael Jordan Jay-Z just like pop icons you know Okay. Um, doing like fun things around it, but just hand painting them on t-shirts. Do you still have some of those hand painted shirts? Yeah, I do. That's Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. 
um, and selling them on eBay. And that, that idea didn't come from anywhere. It really was inspired by originally, I wanted to open up a hookah lounge, like a hookah bar. And okay. I was like 17 or 18. And I just thought, there's no hookah bar. All my friends are here having hookah like every day. This is ridiculous. I need to charge all these people. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, there's no hookah bar like anywhere in Beaverton, anywhere in Portland at the time. This was like probably ni- 2004. And I'm like, okay. this is, this, that's a huge opportunity. Oh my God. And I was like, I need at least $15,000. Who the hell's going to give me that? So then I was like, well, what can I do? And I think I was working at the I was working in the back of a bowling alley. The bowling alley used to be called Valley Lanes out here in Beaverton. And I was wor- I was literally fixing machines in the back. I don't even know. That's a whole story of itself. But anyways, uh, I was thinking, like, oh, my God, because I have this ability. I need this money. Like, what can I do? I literally was sitting there for, for days, maybe even weeks, trying to figure out how to come mm-hmm. up with 10, 15 grand. And... Um, mm-hmm. An idea just probably like, I mean, I could like paint t-shirts and like sell them or something, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I didn't know what to do. So I like, yeah. so I just, I painted like a Michael Jordan t-shirt and like, I've seen like the airbrush look and that's cool, but yeah. I couldn't do that. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can, which is brush to canvas, uh, but just swap out the canvas for a t-shirt. And then I started pa- doing these Michael Jordan paintings or t-shirts and I put them up on eBay and I woke up one day and it was like worth like 60, you know, like 60, 70 bucks. And I was like, oh my God, I just made more money overnight than I did all week working this job. <laughs> so um, I, I literally took that money and just bought more blank t-shirts. So okay. now you can kind of see where the story goes. And then I got into screen yeah, printing. Yeah, you've got quite the entrepreneur brain. Yeah. And I don't know where that question came from, but I think it was probably the most important question I ever asked myself is like, what can I do or how can I do something? Cause that yeah. became the only question I needed to do anything moving forward was just mm-hmm. figuring out how. And so that led to screen printing, which was kind of side by side while I went through architecture school. Um, it took me a few tries to get into the architecture program. I failed a few times uh, to get in. And then once I got accepted, mm-hmm. I took it really serious. So I put the printing on the back burner took that really serious ended up traveling a little bit went to India and did some did some stuff there and it was remarkable nice. and then uh I came back I graduated everything was fine and then there was no work it was 2010 the economy was tanked uh-huh. uh yep. <laughs> no one was hiring an architect let alone building anything so it put me in this weird okay, what can I do? (laughs) You know, like, now what do I do? And I was still kind of printing, I still had some of the equipment. So I was just Mm -hmm. like, and I and I had like somebody randomly one day hit me up and go, Hey, I need some t shirts. I was like, Oh, my God, I need Mm -hmm. this 500 bucks. (laughs) Um, So I got back into it, bought some more equipment and just been at it ever since since 2011, took it really legit. There's a few things in there. Um, like I printed like a blazer shirt, got in trouble for it, got fined, pretty much <laughs> lost the business, came back to it. And I was like, okay, I got to do things way more legit, way more serious. And yeah, I love the idea of just being in control of my time mm-hmm. um, and not having to like answer to, I guess, a boss. But then I, re- I grew up to realize that all my clients are more or less my managers and bosses. <laughs> 
<laughs> they just somehow work with my terms. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's there's definitely an awesome plus side to owning a business, but the that's mm-hmm. the tip of the iceberg. The bottom piece is where is the hardest part to have like learned and like get around. And I'm still going through, like I'm still learning about so many different things, yeah. especially in the financial aspect of a business. Yeah. Um, you have to be though. I feel like you have to continue learning. Otherwise you're just going to be stagnant. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I, and I learned through a lot of failing. Um, so that, you know, I'll yeah. put that out there too, is that like I repeatedly failed at doing all kinds of things repeatedly and I don't know there's a lot of times where I gave up you know like that's not a bad thing to give up Mm -hmm. something that doesn't really work or Mm -hmm. didn't work and to try something else um yeah so you know I know a lot of people are like don't give up and whatever like it's too much it's too sometimes it'll get in your head too much and you end up not enjoying your life and getting really miserable um trying to chase something that that you can still chase, but start to think about in a smart way. And I think that's where the shift happened for me when, when it came to refugees. Yeah. So is, is refugees like another name for the printery or. I'm glad you asked. um, Um, Like what is that exactly? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. So the printery is our umbrella company. So we do obviously printing. It's a printing service for local organizations, companies, schools, things like that. Um, So they come to Mm -hmm. us, say we need a couple hundred t-shirts, we take their design and print it. So that's, it's basically a flat out service. Um, But Mm -hmm. I was not okay with that, (laughs) right? Like I Mm -hmm. wanted it to be more than that. I, I just felt like working with clients, customers to attract the people I wanted to work with, the, the, the printer Uh had to become more than just the print shop. So Right. What is the service? What are programs that you're doing? How are you helping your community? Because I realized those companies around me that I really wanted to work with were engaged with their community. They are, they're out and uh-huh. about. They're, they're doing some sort of campaign. They're, they're, very, they're constantly proactive. And in, mm-hmm. you're aware of them because they're around. You see it. You see their logo. You see their graphics. You see, um, you see them being presented somewhere or them sponsoring yeah. other things. So it clicked for me. I was like, wow, I need a program that's basically uh, it's going to be our give back program. Like I'm going to I want to give back. I want to help my refugee community. But how can I do that? Like I, I can't just give jobs mm-hmm. because I don't it's not that kind of company. Right. I don't have right. tons of jobs to give. <laughs> can't just hire everybody. Yeah, like, oh, my. Like, OK. And I can't just give tons of clothes away. That's unsustainable as mm-hmm. well. So we're right. like, let's just start with a box. And I thought the word refugees was hilarious. Um, like in the sense that it brings, it lightens refugees. That it's like, yeah. and you know exactly what the T is doing for the refugee. Like it, it just says right. it. The message is within right. the word. And I was like, wow. Yeah, that's such a per- perfect personal tie for you. Exactly. And it was just like, it couldn't ring more true, like you just said. And so uh, those two went together and I thought, all right, maybe we'll just start with a box. And then like, I just was dying for an outlet to create my own designs and t-shirts. Okay. And so I needed to connect it to an outlet and it was the perfect outlet. And I was like, okay, if you do this once a month, I get to have an opportunity to create a fun t-shirt every month. And whether we sell 10 shirts 
or a hundred, that's fine. That's not what the point is. The point is to bring something positive out every month Mm -hmm. and then tie that to the idea of celebrating. Like every time a t-shirt comes out, it means we delivered a box of goods, beanies, hats, you know, t-shirts, button downs to Uh Catholic charities or Urco. And um, then like, you know, the whole circle is made. Right. And then we can now talk about refugees we can talk up, we can bring up awareness. Uh, we can bring up work and what it means to do something that you love. And then we can bring mm-hmm. up uh, connecting all those and inspiring young people to follow their dreams, perhaps, you know, or maybe seek something that isn't the norm. Like, I didn't think it was the norm for me to pursue this business, but I did. And it's worked out okay. Um, I'll be yeah. honest, there are times where I've wanted to quit, you know, <laughs> there are times where <laughs> you want to throw in a towel, but that's business in general. It has nothing to do with my art or the graphic, you know, all that, that whole world. So, right. Oh, I love it. So that's um, what Refugees is in a, in a nutshell. Cool. Yeah. So if I wanted to print shirts for mm-hmm. something that I was doing, I would go through the printer. Exactly. And how, how would I find you? So you go to the printery.com. Okay. Um, and you'll go on there and you'll see, you know, our story, what we're about. Um, we just updated our service page, which goes into really specific detail as to, you know, there's a lot of questions that people always have, but we just kind of present it in a very cool graphic way. That's easy to absorb. Um, uh-huh. And really the thing that we have people do like when let's say you want those 50 t-shirts for your organization great we say Mm -hmm. you know you're gonna we're gonna order an extra hoodie um with your order from our suppliers and we're gonna toss that hoodie in that box so everyone everyone that has ever ordered with us since 2016 summer of 2016 i would Mm -hmm. say a good at least a couple of dollars from each order has gone into giving back to refugees so whether you just buy a single t-shirt from refugees.com or work with uh-huh. us with the printery.com as our service, um, you're, you're helping the same or basically the same feed into the program. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And so then I think you just said it, but just to clarify, if then I wanted to just purchase one of your limited, edi- limited edition mm-hmm. uh, refugees, um, there's a separate website for yeah, that. Just refugees.com. You can still access it through the printery.com. There's a refugees link, like a like a page okay. link. But if you click that, it'll just take you to refugees.com. Okay. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I, have, I do have five kind of simple, silly little questions uh, that I want to ask people. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, um, what is your favorite or must-read book? Oh, man, that's that's probably one of the hardest questions out there <laughs> um like right now or just all together Forever. um whichever one's gonna be easiest for you to answer okay you can do either uh right now i would say like i'm rereading uh the profit if you're a small business owner or like for you for example you're starting out this podcast or anyone that's starting out anything uh-huh. that's sort of gonna earn them some extra income or something you should read profit first by mike McCallowitz or something like that. I can't pronounce his last name. Okay, cool. So, yeah. Profit. I will have to check that yeah. out. I don't think I've heard of it yeah, before. It's really good. 
the second question uh, around self-care, which I have learned so much more about in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do something for self-care? Do you have a favorite go-to self-care routine? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, in the last year, uh, before I married my wife and now after, we, we started a morning routine of just working out for like an hour in the morning and it's changed my life. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Great I way. Yeah. Great way to start yeah. the day. Um, and I love to travel. Um, I know you've traveled at least some, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you, ha- what's your biggest travel necessity? Like, what do you have to have with you when you uh, travel, whether that's, uh, flying around the world or just like an out of town road trip? Um, man, the thing that I have to have with me that, I mean, it could be anything like it doesn't like, I would say my phone because of like like I like to know maps I like to know where I'm at or my wife's really good about finding restaurants and stuff like that but so like phone but really what I have to have with me is my um, sketchbook like it's a must fine do you just see some like have inspiration come whenever and want to be able to sketch it out exactly I mean it just it comes with me everywhere all the time so (laughs) that's if that's something I have to have to take it's that for sure yeah. Um, this is one of my favorite questions, uh, but I always, I always love to, to know this about people. Um, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? <laughs> okay, so when I was a little kid, when we first came to America, um, I, okay, so even before that, when I was in a refugee camp, I was super into um, like Arnold, Terminator, you know, just um, <laughs> like just that. I don't know the action or like Bruce Lee. I was super into like human freaking abilities, right? And then of course yeah. discovered Batman and the whole hero collection when I came to America. So I was even more into that. So for a little while, I wanted to be like Spider Man or Batman because I just thought they were <laughs> the coolest I love things. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then the last question has to do um, with the title. Uh, this is the Contagious Courage podcast. Mm-hmm. So hoping. Um, to inspire others. Um, what gives you hope for the future? Oh, so many things. I mean, uh, what gives me hope? Man, some of these kids that I get to meet when I go speak and do stuff, it it gives me so much hope for the future because yeah. um, we're not not building a brighter future. Everyone's working really hard to make things better. I truly believe that. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, it takes, it takes a village. So we got to help the youth seek about, seek out a better future. So I think, yeah. um, yeah, that I would say giving time to help the youth understand the world we're in, yeah. the better. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are pretty great and powerful. That yeah. Way. I think you're in that world too, aren't you? <laughs> yep. I'm a teacher. So <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Um, and what, something that you just said reminded me, um, you also do public speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if, if a school wants you to come and talk to them, uh, how do, how do they book you for that? Um, very easy. They can go to the printery.com. They can go to refugees.com and there's a little link on there, both on both of them. It's just a speaking. When they click on okay. that, it takes them to basically my speaking schedule page. And they can just mm-hmm. pick a time, 
pick a pick a, a day and um, there's times where I'm not available. There's times where I am. If there are, you know, there's a specific time they want, they can just email me, but um, easily accessible. And then you can book from there. And for schools awesome. and nonprofits and things like that, I'm, I'm pretty much free. Um, I just get, mm-hmm. especially locally, I donate my time. But um, when it comes to like networking events and uh, business events and things like that, I typically just charge the um, sort of getting there, getting back gas fee, you know. Wow. Well, that is good to know. Yeah. Uh, you are a very incredible person and thank you, you have so a pretty much. remarkable story. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. I'm so excited for you in this, um, this new venture of yours. And I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be exciting for you to, to do these interviews. And I'm so excited to sort of link on and, and follow it up too. So maybe we'll have to yeah, do this again. I'm excited too. All right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll take, Take care. Have a good one. Take care. Thank you all so much for listening to the Contagious Courage podcast. If you liked this episode, please leave a review or take a screenshot to share on your social media. It means so much to a newbie podcast like mine. Stay tuned and I'll catch you next time.